So you could turn to Romans chapter 11. Probably two more messages today, and maybe one more in Romans chapter 11. Or two more after that. But look at the ending. Look at the ending, how it ends. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. And he talks about the wisdom and the knowledge of God and his ways past finding out. And So when you end the chapter on that note, you know there's some good things in the chapter. Paul is just bowing down in praise of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again that we have an opportunity to look into your word. And you desired that this word would transform our life. I pray, Father, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only, as the scripture says, deceiving ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the word, Jesus, the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was buried and, and rose again according to the scriptures. And that is the gospel message. That's the good news that we have believed. That is the good news that we are to tell other people. So Lord, I would do pray that we would have the courage to be able to do that, to be your ambassadors as you tell us to do, your spokesmen. That we could, Lord, just point people to, to Christ, the light of the world, the Savior of the world. So Lord, as we look at this chapter here, these verses in the book of Romans, we do pray for understanding. Help us to, to rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, help us to stand firmly upon it without compromising this day. To be faithful to you in everything that you have called us to do. It's a great, great privilege, Lord, to, to know you as our Savior. And Father, I pray that our life will reflect that privilege that we have received. And also, Lord, that our life would reflect the joy of knowing Jesus. There is no greater joy. There is no other haven of rest. There is no other Savior. So we look unto you. And we, we ask, God, your divine blessing now through the Spirit of God. As we look into your word. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen. So last Sunday I preached on Israel's fall. When I talk about Israel's fall, I'm talking about national Israel. The people that we know as the Jews, the one chosen by God for special purposes in the world. But if you would look now in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, you'll see that the fall of Israel was preceded by, by a stumble. They, they stumbled into a great fall, as it were. Romans 11, 11 says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. And we saw that this word provoke, some translations have the word emulation. It means uh, to desire the salvation that they had rejected. That was God's purpose in bringing Beauty out of ashes, so to speak, here. Uh, the Greek word patio, stumble, 
literally means to trip, and metaphorically it means to trip into sin, to fall into sin. James 2.10 says, For whoever will keep the whole law and yet offend, and that's the same word, patio, right there in one point, or sin in one point, he is guilty of all. Have you ever stopped to think how many different tactics, strategies, Satan has to get people to entice them to sin And then once they fall into that sin, he secures them in it. It becomes a bondage. And boy, there are so many people trying to break the grip of that bondage. Drugs are... I I heard on the news that some drummer of of a popular band, I'd never even heard the name of the band before, so don't hold me to its music. Uh, But he was a drummer, 50 years old, and he died. Uh, yesterday or the day before, and they probably the day before because they did the toxicology report and they found 10 different drugs, illegal drugs in his system. So he basically killed himself. But Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles. That's the strategies of the devil. The Greek word for wiles is methodia. So what does that sound like? Methods or methodology. So Satan has many methods. He has a system literally in place. He knows what will appeal to certain people. Not everything will appeal to you or to somebody else, but he knows what will appeal to people. And he brings that before him. So Israel fell. They tripped. And they fell into sin. But here's a spiritual equation for you based on Romans 11.11. Israel's fall equals Gentile salvation. That's the blessing. The Phillips paraphrase, we read this last week of Romans 11.11. Now I ask myself, was this fall of theirs an utter disaster? Like the idea of permanence. God's permanently rejected them. It was not. God forbid, is the King James translation, may it never be. For through their failure or fall, the benefit of salvation has passed to the Gentiles with the result that Israel is made to see and feel what it has missed. So Israel fell into sin. Their national sin was the rejection of Christ as their Savior and their deliverer. Now, individual sins, people have commit different kinds of individual sins, but speaking corporately of the nation, their national sin was rejecting Christ. And their rejection of Christ led to his crucifixion and resurrection, which became the very basis for the salvation of the Gentiles and the gospel going forth in power. The religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, and so forth, and, and I have to qualify that. Not all of them, but a great part of them, the great number of them, the religious leaders, they express their rejection of Jesus as Messiah when they attributed his miracles to Satan in Matthew chapter 12. And that was like the final straw in terms of the rejection of Christ. 
That was at that point that Jesus said they had committed a sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God, that would never be forgiven them. The unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God. And according to the context, it is to attribute to Satan the miracles of Christ, that, that Satan was working in him. So that was in Matthew chapter 12. Then in Matthew chapter 13 is really a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus now begins a series of parables, beginning with the parable of the sower and the seed. That's in chapter 13 of Matthew, verses 1 to 9. But I'm going to pick the reading up in Matthew chapter 13, 10. Now, you're all familiar with these scriptures because we've, we've focused in on this before. And the disciples, and they came and they said to him, Why are you speaking to us in, in parables? And he answered and he said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Those who were rejecting the teaching that they had received and the evidence that Christ was Messiah. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But who, whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he had. In other words, they had rejected the light of Christ. That was clearly evident. And once they rejected that light, no further light would be given to them. So Jesus begins to speak in parables to hide the light or the truth from them. Therefore, he says, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And, and in them, he says, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. So this was, shouldn't, was not a surprise to Jesus by, by any measure. Isaiah 6.10 prophesied this which says, by hearing you will hear and not understand, and seeing you will not see and you will not perceive. So there's this blindness, this judicial blindness, what we called it. Look in Romans chapter 11, verse 8. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of, of slumber or sleep. The word there is tardama. And he says, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. So the, the Hebrew equivalent of that word is the word that was used in Genesis when, when God basically put Adam to sleep and he took the rib from him and so forth. So, so they were given this spirit of slumber. They couldn't see things the way they truly were. So look in Acts now, chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. In verse 17, it says, And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. So this, this was a Jewish audience. We wanted to establish that fact. Now look at verse 20. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you because... That, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Who was the hope of Israel? Jesus. 
Who is every man's hope? Jesus. The hope of Israel. Verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them or attempting to persuade them concerning Jesus. And because it's a Jewish audience, what did he, he, what did he use? He used the law of Moses and, and the prophets, the books of the law and the prophets, from morning till evening. So this was a long session. But look at the result in verse 24. And some believed the things which were spoken. This is a receptive remnant. A receptive remnant. And some did not believe. This group is the hardened majority. Paul then applied the prophecy of Isaiah to them. Verse 25. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Well spoke the Holy Spirit by Isaiah, the prophet, unto our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, just what Jesus quoted in Matthew, Hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross. It's dull. It's hardened. And their ears are dull of hearing. In their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and would be converted and I would heal them. I would heal them. So look what he says then. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. They are not suffering from this hardness of heart. Mark Kinzer in Perspectives on Israel and the Land He says, this scene in Acts chapter 28 here, which we just read, makes little sense if we view Paul's audience as a collection of Jewish individuals and his aim in addressing them as the salvation of many as possible. So he was, did he go into this, you know, thinking, well, try to get as many as possible here. Instead, he says, what Paul was after was a communal decision of belief in Jesus as Messiah. The presence of disagreement among the Jews is enough to show that Paul did not achieve what he was seeking. He was seeking a communal decision, a recognition by the Jewish community as a whole and and their leadership that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. He was trying to bring them to that point through the law and the prophets. He was expounding the law and the prophets. You could not have been in a better Bible study than to sit under a man who grew up under the law, who knew the prophets, the prophetic scriptures, and applied them to Christ, and yet they rejected it. The presence, he says, of significant opposition shows that it wasn't going to happen. Not at that time. So Michael Valach, excellent theologian, says this situation will be reversed one day. This national rejection of Jesus by the majority will be reversed one day, When national Israel believes in Jesus, and that's predicted, he says, in passages such as Zechariah 12, 10, and Romans 11, 26. So look at Romans 11, 25 here. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Remember, a mystery is something that was hidden in the times past, but it was revealed at at a particular time in the plan of God. 
He says, so I would, I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant of the mystery list, that you would become wise in your own conceits. Now notice that blindness in part has happened to Israel. It's happened to Israel. That group that we spoke about, judicial blindness, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel will be saved... As it is written, there will come out of Zion the deliverer and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. He's going to deal with that problem, that sin problem of their their national rejection of him as Messiah. But the rejection of the gospel by the Jews in the plan of God really turned out to be a glorious thing because it led to Gentile redemption. It led to Gentile redemption. It also led to the dominion or the rulership of Gentile nations over Israel. And that continues into this present day. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. And when you will see Jerusalem compassed or encircled by armies, then you will know that the desolation thereof is near. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to him, or to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be a great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people." And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led away captive into nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down until, until, it'll be trodden down by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles by, be fulfilled. With the destruction of, of Rome or Jerusalem in 70 AD by, Vespasian, by, by Titus and the Roman legions under Vespasian, the Jews were dispersed worldwide, all over the world. But he says that this is going to happen. Gentile rulership is going to happen until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. Now the word until there indicates a reversal of a condition. This is the present condition. National Israel is in unbelief, hardening of hearts. And this is going to continue... And they're going to be under Gentile rule until God reverses the condition. Until. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death. And we do that every, you know, once a month on a Sunday. But what does the ending say? Until. We're doing this until he comes. So the church will no longer celebrate the remembrance of the Lord's death once Jesus returns. Because you do not have to memorialize someone who is present. Things have changed. But we celebrate it until then, until that reversal of the situation. Galatians 3.19 Wherefore thou then serves the law. What was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until... Until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That was Jesus. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a meteor. There up on on, uh, Mount Sinai. 
So what he's saying here again is a reversal of a condition. The law was in force until Jesus came. Once he appeared, the restrictions in the law were no longer in force as they were under the strict adherence to the Mosaic Code. A condition was reversed because the law had served its purpose. Now, one author I read said this, the salvation of the fullness of the Gentiles is integral to the salvation of Israel. But not because the church is Israel. Replacement theology is not biblical, as some would claim. Rather, it is because it is God's will that the Gentiles enter salvation prior to the redemption of the ethnic nation of Israel, the greatest part of the ethnic nation of Israel. You know, it's interesting. Starting with Abraham, God used Israel to save Gentiles. Gentiles would come into the nation of Israel as proselytes and receive the benefit. God is now using Gentiles to who? To save the Jews, to reach the Jews. And there's a great blessing in doing that. So he mentions this phrase, the times of the Gentiles there in Luke 21, 24. That's the only time that that phrase is found in the New Testament, the times of the Gentiles. A lot of times there are words that are, that are used only one time. It's, it, they are called apox legumina, you know, once only words. But the phrase, as I mentioned already, times of the Gentiles in which we are living has to do with the rulership of Jerusalem by Gentile powers. And that's still, still today, the case today, even though Israel became a nation in 1948. This began with the destruction of Jerusalem. The times of the Gentiles began with the destruction of Jerusalem when they were taken into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. It will end only when Israel will permanently gain control of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, which they do not have. If you go to Israel, you may not be able to go onto the Temple Mount because the, the Palestinian organization that controls it will, now, will not let it let that happen so it began with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC will end when Israel gains control of Jerusalem at the second coming of Christ that's when he will seize control and then the salvation of the Gentiles is completed Psalm 106.43 he gave them into the hand of the heathen and they that hated them ruled over them And that's the situation now. But look at verse 12. Now if the fall of them, who is he speaking about? Israel. Be the riches of the world. What are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings that have come through Jesus Christ. If the fall of Israel be the riches, the spiritual blessings of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles... That's the diminishing of them. Israel, how much more their fullness. Through their rejection of Christ as Messiah, apart from a small remnant within the nation, Paul being one of them, he said God wasn't finished with Israel, he was living proof, right? He was of the tribe of Benjamin. But through that, many Gentiles were coming into faith, into the Lord Jesus Christ, And they are still coming to Christ 
as a result of what happened, while relatively a small number of Jews are being saved. Jewish evangelism is very difficult. But we hear of great revivals throughout history of Gentiles being saved. And that's true today too. But verse 25 in Romans 11 speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles. Verse 12 speaks of the fullness of Israel. So both have to do with a blessing that comes through salvation in Christ, which was always God's way of salvation. And it's the only way of salvation. There is neither salvation in any other, right? Except in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he talks about fullness here, the word is pleroma. And it's likely speaking of a great harvest, a tremendous blessing that is yet to come. In the present dispensation of the church, the church age began in Acts chapter 2. And in this present dispensation of the church, a large harvest of Gentiles are being saved. But Israel in the future is going to see a fullness. There's going to be a great blessing. The world will see a large number of Jews coming to Christ. Romans 11.26 says, and we read it before, and so when the Deliverer comes to Zion, all Israel will be saved. That's hyperbole. We'll talk about that more next week, what the exact meaning of all is. As it is written, there will come out of Zion the Deliverer, and he will turn ungodliness from Jacob. And they're going to repent. They're going to repent when they look upon him whom they have pierced. And that will be national repentance. So, going on to verse 13 and 14. But I speak unto you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. An apostle is a literally a sent one. So it usually refers to that group of 12 apostles, and then the apostle Paul, one born out of due time, and also Matthias, who took Judas a place. It's used in a secondary sense in the New Testament of other disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who had a particular mission that they were sent on, but not in the same sense as it was of the original apostles. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. God has sent me to the Gentiles. I magnify my office. Now that is not foolish boasting by Paul. He is not not patting himself on the back. He's not magnifying himself. But he's really, in essence, magnifying the glory of God, putting into the office that he had as an apostle so that Christ's love could be manifest through him to the Gentiles and that many would be saved. And in the process there would be those in Israel who would be provoked to receive the Lord. They'd be provoked to jealousy and receive the Lord. And that's what he says in verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to emulation or jealousy them which are my flesh, his countrymen, and and might save some of them, some of them would come to Christ. And Paul, and that's what he lived for, didn't he? Paul just, every beat of his heart was toward people who didn't know Christ and toward the brethren, his brethren. 
fellow believers, his love for fellow believers. But he just, he was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was a church planter. He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did not care what it cost him. And many times, for many people in the world, preaching the gospel is costly. Do you know what it costs us? Practically nothing. We don't suffer for the gospel's sake. But many people do in the world. And we're reminded to pray for them. That's why we put on our prayer list. Pray for the persecuted church. As we sit here in comfort in this beautiful place, there are many of our brethren in Christ who are suffering for the cause of Christ. So Paul was not glorying in himself and saying he magnified his office. Listen, Paul knew exactly where he came from. Do you know where you came from? Do you know the pit out of which God drew you? I do. The world. 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. But he knew his roots. Who was before a blasphemer? And a persecutor, persecutor he, he persecuted the church, the Bible says in Acts, and wasted it and injurious. But he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And from, from, from before he was born, God had Paul set aside for a tremendous mission. God qualified him so that he'd be able to have the mastery of the law of Moses and go forth and preach the gospel first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. So verse 15 really further explains verse 12. Verse 13 and 14 really are kind of like a, a, a parenthesis between 12 and 15. So in verse 15 he says, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, that's the setting aside of the Jews, National Israel, the unbelievers, those who are hardened, what will the receiving of them be but life from the dead? I call this a reversal of fortune. When Israel's rejection in the present time means the reconciliation of the Gentiles to God, dependent upon their individual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their future acceptance will be like life from the dead. And that's what he's saying there. The NASB translates it this way. For if their rejection, this is God's rejection of Israel, not, not Israel's rejection of Christ. For if their rejection proves to be the reconciliation of the world, that's the Gentile world, what will their acceptance be when the Jews accept Christ? It'll be like life from the dead. It will eclipse that. Now, the absence of the definite article before reconciliation here in the Greek means that it is serving as a predicate nominative, a noun. Reconciliation is the removal of enmity that stands between people and God. Propitiation really removes the wrath that created the state of enmity between men and God. And reconciliation provides the basis of of restored fellowship. You might be at odds with someone. What's the goal? Reconciliation, right? Reconciliation. 
That's the goal. So reconciliation equals turning enmity to amity. Hostility to peace. And that's a beautiful thing, right? It's a beautiful thing to see in a church. It's a beautiful thing to see in a marriage. It would be wonderful to see in our government, right? So much hostility. It would be nice to see people getting along better, right? Even if they don't agree with them. So look at this verse, Colossians 1.9. For it pleased the Father that in Him, that's Jesus, should all fullness dwell. The fullness of the Godhead, really, bodily. And having made peace, peace, through the blood of the cross, by Him, to reconcile all things to Himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Listen, according to Romans chapter 8, the creation is in what? It's bonded. It's in bondage. It's travailing. It's groaning. It's not at peace. That's why we have hurricanes and tsunamis and violent floods. It's not at peace. It's waiting for the day. When, when it will be changed. Creation itself. What was the basis for the reconciliation of a creation that is yet to be? The death of Christ. It says it right here. That through the shedding of his blood, he established the basis for the future reconciliation of the creation itself. Now, Jesus provided reconciliation for all men. It says right there, for the whole Gentile world. Objectively. That's, he provided the basis for any person, anywhere in the world, to be reconciled completely to him. However, sinners must subjectively, as I said on many occasions, appropriate, receive the reconciliation that God has provided. The willingness to turn from a state of hostility and wrath to peace. Because everyone right now, the wrath of God who doesn't know Jesus Christ, it's abiding over them. And they don't know it. They can, they can talk like they know God, but they don't really know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So they have no real relationship with God as Father. 2 Corinthians 5.19, what does it say? God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Objectively, that's what he did. Just as he reconciled all things in heaven on earth yet, but we don't yet see them at peace. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray in Christ's stead, in his place. Here's the command. Christ reconciled the world. Be ye reconciled to God. That is a free will decision. People can accept or reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Griffith Roberts had said, It was better for Adam that his hands were free to take the forbidden fruit than that he should have been compelled to go about all the days of his life with his hands tied behind his back. Freedom is one of God's great blessings to men. And sin entered into the world when man abused the privilege of the freedom that God gave him. 
And what a breath there was to that freedom, right? You may eat of what? Of anything and everything except this one thing. And he failed. Listen, you have a free will. Every day you exercise your free will for or against God to some measure. Nobody is compelling you to sin. You sin freely. And please, never assign it to God. He is not the author of sin. So Jesus provided reconciliation for the world of the Gentiles through the setting aside of Israel. Through the setting aside of Israel. And he says that when Christ returns and things are turned around again, that it's going to be like life from the dead. That's miraculous when Israel comes to God. They're going to come to life one day spiritually. National Israel is going to come to life one day spiritually. And according to that verse, life from the dead like life from the dead, the future blessing will be even greater than the Gentile reconciliation. Not numerically, not numerically. Okay, then how will it be greater? I think it's going to be greater in a unique way because a nation is going to be born in a day. That's what the scripture says. A nation will be born, will come to life in a day. Look in Ezekiel chapter 37. Verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me, that's the prophet Ezekiel, and brought me out in the, spirit of the, in the Spirit of the Lord. He was empowered by the Spirit of God. And he set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry bones and he said to me son of man can these bones live so I answered oh Lord you know you know and he said prophecy to these bones and say to them oh dry bones hear the word of the Lord some Christians are like dry bones There's no life in them. They need to hear the word of God. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you will live. I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you will live. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When you... When you receive this life, this newness of life. So I prophesied as I commanded, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. Do, do, do. I mean, you could just see the scene, the rattling going on here. And suddenly a rattling, and the bones were coming together. They were knitting together bone to bone. God is doing a miracle. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over. But but look, there was no breath in them. There was no breath in them. Also, he said, prophecy to, to, to the breath. 
prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, from the scattering, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood with their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Listen, this is describing a dead nation being restored to life, spiritually speaking. Now, a dead nation restored to life, I would say to you, that's pretty miraculous, right? It's a miracle anytime a person dead in their trespass and sin is saved and they come to life. We call that regeneration. The miracle of regeneration born from above. New life. A new heart for God. They thought they had a heart for God. Some of them they didn't. Some of them just couldn't care less about God. Henry Morris explained it this way. The first part of this dry bones prophecy was evidently fulfilled with the worldwide return of the Jews to Israel and the official recognition of that nation in 1948. The true spiritual regeneration of the nation, Romans 11:26, when, when God comes out of Zion, Jesus, however, waits the Spirit's coming and their acceptance of Christ when he returns. That's Zechariah 12.10. So, so look at this, these couple of scriptures. Ezekiel 37. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. That's the Gentile nations of the world. They were scattered in 70 AD all over. Whither, wherever they are gone, the four corners of the earth, other passages speak, and I will gather them on every side. And what does it say? And bring them into their own land. And God did that. But watch. Ezekiel 37, 8. And when I beheld, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them. And the skin covered them above. But there was no breath in them. So they come back to the land. But there's no breath in them yet. The nation has not been born again in a day. John Walford said this, The bones being restored without life are a picture of Israel today back in her land as a secular people. The majority of Jews don't care about God. They're as lost as the lost Gentiles are. As a secular people, but without spiritual life. Since the nation still does not believe in Jesus as their Messiah, there is no breath in them yet. So a great miracle has taken place, bringing them back into the land in preparation for the breath of God going into them. Spiritual life when they cry out to Jesus. Now listen. Israel's return to the land, and this is significant, constitutes a preparation for the end stage in God's plan of redemption. 
It has set the stage for the coming of the Lord. It has set the stage for the coming of His church in the rapture. And it has set the stage for the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic destiny. That's why Paul at the end of this chapter just praises God for what he is doing. The world stage is being set before our eyes for the restoration of a believing Israel in the plan of God. Hallelujah. I just read that an estimated 200,000 Ukrainians are eligible to immigrate to Israel under what Israel calls the law of return. And they're going to receive automatic citizenship. 200,000. Some of them have already come back. And Israel is said to, to be prepared to receive tens of thousands of Ukrainians. Jews this year. How many millions have returned to the land of Israel since 1948 from all over the world over three and a half million have returned to the land that's those bones rattling and moving now that sounds wonderful right wow they're coming they're leaving the persecuted countries They're coming back to Israel, to the land. It's all wonderful. Listen to me. They are returning to the land for the judgment of the tribulation period. The time of Jacob's trouble. Ezekiel 20, I'm going to read this for sake of time. As I live, verse 33, declares the Lord, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I assuredly will be king over you. He is going to be king over them, but not before God's wrath is poured out. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands, talking about a worldwide dispersion where you are scattered and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you. Face to face. Let's read the book of Revelation and the judgments that are awaiting the planet Earth and the time of Jacob's trouble. Just as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. And when they are on the brink of annihilation is when they will cry out to God, to Jesus, for mercy. And they'll recognize Him as the one whom they have pierced. He will come and He will save them. And then at that moment, He will breathe life into them. And those bones will live. Two illustrations. Closing. The first, Romans eleven sixteen. For if the fruit, that's the, the, the first fruit, that's the dough or the cake be holy, the lump is holy. It comes from this passage in, the, in, in Numbers. 15, 18. Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, when you come into the land whither I bring you, that was the promised land, Then it will be that when you eat of the bread of the land, you will offer up a heave offering unto the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your dough 
For a heave offering, as you do the heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you heave it. So the cake made from the first ground meal of the wheat harvest was set apart or dedicated to God, and it symbolized that everything belonged to him, right? The whole of the harvest belonged to him. They would just take a portion of it and set it aside, but the whole harvest was really God's doing. And God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills too, right? What do we have that we have not received? From the good hand of the Lord. So all that came from God's blessings on Israel is for his glory. It was set apart for him. That's what he's saying. Holy means set apart for God. It's not describing a moral quality there. You know, by the way, when you were saved, you were sanctified. That means you were set apart for God. Hebrews chapter 10. But you're not fully sanctified in the sense of your moral quality. So what I'm saying is, you can be a Christian, set aside for God, that was what your calling was, that's what God wants you to be, set aside completely for Him, but you can still sin. You don't have have that practical holiness about you. So then what does God do? He deals with you as his children. If you don't suffer the discipline of the Lord, then you're not his children. So God wants our standing in Christ, what we call positional holiness or sanctification. He wants our practical holiness to match our standing in Christ. So if we claim to be a Christian, then we should live like Christians. We should act like Christians. We should talk like Christians. We should walk like Christians. We should show the fruit of the Spirit to people who don't know, especially to people who don't know the Lord. And you know what the fruits of the Spirit are, according to the book of Galatians. So then the second illustration is the wild olive tree. Look at this, verse 16. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches are broken off, then you, being a wild olive tree... We're grafted in among them. That's us. If you're a Gentile, you're a wild olive tree. And with them partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. The olive tree in, is, in the scripture is Israel. I mean, when you, th- you know, olive, do you like olives? I like olives. Olive oil. I mean, God used the picture of olives and olive oil as, as a picture of, of blessing and health, and healing. But he says here, if the root, well, who are the root? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the root of the tree is holy, set apart by God, I mean, nobody could doubt God called Abraham to a unique person, that through him, right, through the Messiah, that would come through his line, all the families of the earth would be blessed. If the, if the root of the tree is holy, so are the branches. Who are the branches? The patriarchs' descendants, those that came after him. Bible Knowledge Commentary says the first fruits and the root represent the patriarchs of Israel or Abraham personally. There's a little difference of opinion there. And the lump and the branches represent the people of Israel. As a result, Israel set apart wholly to God and her stumbling rejection of Christ must therefore be temporary. It's temporary. The broken off branches are the unbelieving Jews. Now, not all of the branches, what we would call the natural descendants of the Jews, were broken off, not all of them, because there is a believing remnant, and according to Galatians 6.16, that believing remnant is the Israel of God. The church is not the Israel of God. 
the believing Jews who've come to faith in Christ are the Israel of God. The wild olive tree are the saved Gentiles. That's us. We have nothing to be boast about, right? That we'll, we'll see that as we go forward. The wild olive tree, the saved Gentiles, have been grafted into the root, to the Abrahamic covenant, to become partaker of the spiritual blessings that God gave to Abraham. We are the, children, we are the sons of Abraham in a spiritual sense. So I'm going to close with Ephesians chapter 2. If I can find it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Now he's speaking to the Gentiles. The wild olive tree. Grafted in to the root, the Abrahamic promises. That at that time, this is before Christ, you were without Christ. This is the condition of every single man born into this world. Every single man born into this world, Jew or Gentile, is born without Christ. But here he's focusing on Christ, on the, Jew, on the Gentiles. Being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow. That's bad condition to be in, right? So if you're on, you know anybody who doesn't know Christ as, as Savior... They are they're strangers to the covenants of promise, the wonderful promises that God made through Abraham. Obviously, they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but they have no hope, and they were without God in the world. So every single person you meet in this world without Jesus Christ is born, is born in a hopeless condition, and they live in a hopeless condition. And if they die in that condition, they die without hope. No hope, no, no chance of them ever being saved. But look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, far off, that means alienated. Alienated because of your sin. And that created a state of hostility between you and God. You who are far off, this is so beautiful, have been reconciled, propitiated. The rat's been removed. The enmity has turned to enmity by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. And what does it result in? Look at Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. So reconciliation, propitiation brings about a state of peace between, between the sinner and God. Wow. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Jesus is coming to me, all ye labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We live in a restless world. Sinners will forever be restless. Nothing will ever satisfy them. Nothing will ever give them peace. Nothing will ever give them hope. 
It only comes about through the shed blood of Jesus Christ when they realize that when God was in Christ on that cross shedding his blood, he was dying for them. He was reconciling them to God, but they must appropriate the value of that shed blood of Jesus Christ and be reconciled to him. And then and only then will you have peace. The Pharisees, when Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye labor who have laden, when I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lonely of heart, and you will find what? Rest for yourselves. Take my yoke upon you. Well, what was he talking about? The people in that day were living under the bondage of the yoke, the yoke of the rabbinic traditions and the additions to, to the to the law that made it impossible for anybody to keep. And Jesus says, I, I want to lift that. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As a matter of fact, we looked at the passage in Scripture here because of Israel's rejection of God preparing a table for them in the wilderness. He says their backs are going to be bowed down. And I thought, well, you yeah, know, that could mean servitude, a picture of servitude. But you know what it also could mean? That they would continue to labor under the burden of the law. And the burden of the law was so heavy, they couldn't bear it up. And they're bowed down. And Jesus says, let me lift that. Let me take that off you. You know what people are burdened under today? They're burdened under their guilt. Their guilt. They're bearing guilt because they're guilty. And Jesus says, let me give you rest. Let me lift that from you. I pray many do, right? Amen. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Every jot, every tittle, sometimes hard to understand, but Lord, we know what you're doing, that, that what you're doing is, is good. You're doing a good thing in the earth. You're in control. You're sovereign. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear what men can do to us. Lord, help us to ever look into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Thank you for this time. I pray, God, we take this message to heart. I pray, God, that we would pray for the people of Israel, that as they come back into the land, that, they, that even as they come back into the land in unbelief, that, that some will be saved, and, and that, Lord, we will, we will continue to evangelize, snatching some as though they are brands out of a fire. May we, your church, be a church, Lord, that is concerned about people, people outside our doors, as well as those who come inside. In Jesus' name, amen.